You have eight minutes, 41 seconds. I know what time it is. I don't need a blooming cuckoo clock. Bridge to all decks. Welcome aboard Enterprise Incidents with Scott and Steve. I'm Scott Nance. And I, Steve Morris, am for you, Scott Nance. Oh, but just don't touch me, Steve Morris. <laughs> it's a good <laughs> thing we're recording remotely. I, I don't <laughs> want my, my cells exploded, in, you know, but that's okay because I have somebody standing in front of me who will protect me. And that is our very special guest making his appearance for the fourth time on Enterprise Incidents. My great pal, one of my favorite Star Trekkers ever, Dave the man Rossi. Welcome back aboard Enterprise Incidents. Thank you so much, guys. Great to be here. Always a lot of fun. Looking Always fun. To. Always fun. And even on an episode where I have not seen this this one in quite some time. Uh it's not one of the episodes that I that I go to, not even on a, a every so often kind of basis. But during my rewatch of this one, I thought it was solid and entertaining and uh surprisingly good but not great. And it is an episode called That Which Survives. Steve Morris, what are, what are your thoughts on this episode? Well, it's, it's funny. I think I might have mentioned this before, that for some reason, there were a bunch of episodes, which as a kid, I saw many, many times. And there were a few episodes, two in particular, which just didn't come up on the rotation. And I don't know if because that's because that was the night I had my scout Boy Scout meeting or Little <laughs> League practice, or for some reason in... You know, in uh, the Bay Area, they didn't air these as much, but That Which Survives and The Lights of Zatar are the two episodes that I always, when they would come on, I'd go, oh, yeah, I forgot about this episode. <laughs> so this, this is definitely one that I have seen far fewer times than the others, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. <laughs> How about you, Dave? What's your take on That Which Survives? Yeah, not a go-to episode for me either. Uh, the last time I saw it was when we were doing the remastered project. So that was like 2007, maybe, 2008 yep. when I saw it last time. Uh, so it's been a good 15 years. You know, in in watching it, I don't know if this is a slam on the episode, but, you know, I used to play Star Trek as a kid with friends. My friend played Spock and I was Kirk. And it, this seems like an episode we would have played. It seems like a, <laughs> like a story we would have played as kids. You know, there's not much to it. The, the Jeopardy seems a little forced. I mean, there's some fun stuff on the Enterprise, but but it's, I don't know, it, it, it's never an episode that's really clicked with me. You know, I, I think that That Which Survives, let's say that That Which Survives aired in the second season. And instead of using her pseudonym and having somebody else write the teleplay, let's just say that, DC Fontana wrote the screenplay in the second season, uh, in, in a season where you had a lot of Jeopardy, where you had moments of genuine suspense where they were racing against the clock. Like, look at Doomsday Machine. You know, that's an episode that you joined us for here on Enterprise Incidents, Dave. You know, I, I feel like if it had that kind of production value, it would have been a far, far better episode than it is in the third season. Now, I have to say that one thing that I really discovered, one thing that I realized doing Enterprise Incidents and watching the episodes, doing our deep dives in production order, Dave, when people say the third season is the weakest of the three, yes, they're right. But when you look at the production order of these episodes, the first half of season three 
was actually pretty good. So if you take out And the Children Shall Lead in Spock's Brain, you have a, a half of season that is actually batting a thousand. Episodes yeah. like The Enterprise Incident, The Paradise Syndrome, Day of the Dove, The Thawing Web. It's the second half of the third season where the quality really does take a nosedive because you lost Jerry Finnerman, you lost DC Fontana, you know, Roddenberry was even was basically a no-show by this point. And of course, you know, Gene Kuhn was was long gone. So so for a second half of third season episode, that which survives, I'm using all these qualifiers, that which survives is actually it's not bad. I found it to be solid, entertaining. I liked going back and forth between, you know, the 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 planet, you know, uh, the station basically, and the Enterprise, and the stuff on the Enterprise was fun. Um, but it's not a great episode. I'm kind of giving it a uh, what do you call it? I'm grading it on a curve, okay, for, right. for the second half of the third season, and I think it is a it's it's fine. It's fine. Uh, I, I certainly enjoyed it, and I have to say, I enjoyed it in a way that. I'll be happy if I enjoy some of the upcoming episodes that we are going to be doing on Enterprise Incidents. But That Which Survives was directed by Herb Wallerstein. It's the second episode he did after he completed the Tholian Web. Uh, the story is written by DC Fontana, uh, but under her pseudonym, Michael Richards, which is never a good sign. The teleplay was by John Meredith Lucas who was the showrunner for the second half of season two and wrote and directed episodes of Star Trek. This is his last credit on Star Trek, his last teleplay. That which survives air for the first time on January 24th, 1969. It was the 72nd episode to air, but it was the 70th to film. And it was filmed on schedule in six days between September 26th and October 3rd. The total cost? for that which survives was 167471 which brought it almost $11,000 under budget. The score was tracked. Now, Fontana wrote her story outline on March 8, 1968, in which it was just called Survival. John Meredith Lucas went to a second draft teleplay, which he did on September 13th. Then Arthur Singer did his final draft teleplay, his rewrite on September 30th. And then Fred Freiberger did his polish, his revised final draft teleplay on September 24th. Would you like to hear about what was actually going on in the world when they were filming this episode? Absolutely. Uh, So this one is fascinating to me, which is that there was an office in the Lord Chamberlain's office in England for 230 years that was finally discontinued on September 26, 1968, and that was the official examiner of plays. This was England's censor that decided whether or not a play could be performed, and that office existed for 230 years until a little musical called Hair came to London. And then that was it for the censorship. On the 27th, King Hussein of Jordan met with Israeli officials to discuss peace plans one year after the Six-Day War. On September 30th, Boeing introduced the 747, the largest passenger aircraft up to that time. With a capacity of 360 passengers, it was double the size of the 707, which was the largest one before that. On October 1st, a very scary movie called Night of the Living Dead premiered in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. 
They're coming um, to get you, Barbara. <laughs> um, and the uh, the producers put out, they said they had an insurance policy that if the movie frightened you to death, you would your family would get fifty thousand dollars. Oh wow! <laughs> um, this is really it's a it's it's one of those ground change moments in cinema. Night of the Living Dead. I agree. I love that movie. On October second, it's ten days now before the opening ceremonies of the Olympics in Mexico City, and there was and I didn't know anything about this. The Tlatelolco massacre took place in Mexico City. Police fired into a crowd of protesters, killing thirty two people right before the Olympics is starting. On the same day, the National Trails System was signed into law, creating 50,000 miles of scenic and historic trails across the United States. On October 3rd, there was a bloodless coup in Peru. And on the same day, presidential candidate George C. Wallace, who is the independent, introduced his running mate, which is General Curtis E. LeMay. And at a press conference, General LeMay said that he didn't believe nuclear weapons would be necessary in Vietnam, but he wasn't necessarily against their use. He said, it doesn't make any difference if a soldier is killed by a rusty knife or a nuclear explosion. In fact, I'd lean towards the nuclear explosion. <laughs> um, two things about this. this One is it, it kind of relates to a line that's in this actual episode. And the other thing is that this guy, I don't know how much you, if you've ever heard of General Curtis E. LeMay, but he is who Sterling Hayden's character in Dr. Strangelove is based on. Uh-huh. Oh, uh, and he is also the subject of a recent uh, Malcolm Gladwell book called the uh, the Bomber Mafia, which is a very very interesting book. So he he is a fascinating guy. So that is what was going on in the world when this was being filmed. Very interesting. And speaking of the film, would, would you like to get into it? Let's get into that which survives and see if we can survive this podcast episode. <laughs> in a way that we will we will shed new light on it and make people like it more than they hopefully already did. A ghost planet? I suggest no supernatural explanation, Captain. I merely point out that the facts do not fit any known categories of planets. You know that I noticed right away? The lighting is just getting worse in every episode, I think. I completely agree. The set Very flat. It's yeah. flat. I mean, like when you compare the lighting and especially in the rest of the season, to like you know the first half of uh, of season two when Jerry Finnerman was like at the top of his game, I mean the lighting you realize how much the cinematography was so special was that it was almost like a character unto itself. Where when Finnerman was really like you know knocking it out of the park, no other show before or since has ever looked like this. And now, you know Star Trek by this point in the third season, it was just looking like any other show. I completely agree. The lighting wasn't as good. But one thing that I, that I did notice uh, is, is Dave, well, here we are. We are doing something in this episode that the Enterprise just didn't do a whole lot of in the original series. And that is we are exploring a strange new world. How many times are we responding to a distress call? Are we transporting delegates or, you know, or is it a battle? Like how many times, like what is the ratio of episodes in the original series where they actually did explore a strange new world? I, yeah. I think someone out there should answer that question. I think we, one of our enterprisers should do a little bit of research and give us <laughs> yeah. the actual ratio. I'd love to hear it. I mean, it's in the it's in the headline of the show, right? It's at the, at the beginning of every show. Yeah, and, explore uh, strange new worlds. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So it, it does. It, it immediately gives you the promise of okay, this is going to be cool. Let's see what they let's see what they're going to serve up. Yeah, sure. 
Um, and this certainly qualifies as a strange new world because none of the facts seem to make sense. It's too small. It's too dense. It's too young to have the vegetation and atmosphere it's supposed to have. And this is where we got this phrase, a ghost planet. And this is just a, an example of bad writing, which is I can totally tell they wanted to use that phrase ghost planet because it applies to what actually the planet is, except there is no reason why Spock or anyone else would call this a ghost planet. But the inconsistencies are so compounded as to present a seemingly impossible phenomenon. But a fascinating one, Mr. Troy. Precisely, Captain. From the beginning of this episode, Spock is a, a little cranky, I think. <laughs> There's a lot of this episode where I, you know how um, we, you, we've talked about, you've talked about the photo novels that they didn't actually always see the episode. They just read the script yeah. and they didn't always match up. I feel like this episode was largely written by someone who was told about Star Trek and its characters, but had never watched an episode. Like, I know that's not true, but Spock in particular is off. Yep, it, I it agree. Is, it yeah. is, he is not written correctly. It's like a facsimile of Spock in this weird way. It is. All his retorts, his, it's very weird. It's real. It's off. Um, and Kirk says, OK, we're going to go investigate. And he calls a landing party, in, including senior geologist Diamato. And the first thought I have is Spock was the one who said this is fascinating. Why isn't Spock going down to the planet? That's my first note. It's my, my first, note. first note, too. But I mean, like, first of all, why is Spock not going down? And why is Sulu going down? Right. I mean, it just makes no sense. Like, nope. like, you know, like all the other landing parties that we've seen in the original series, you know, we just go with it. You know, the captain doesn't really need to be there. And that's something that they definitely address with the next generation because they have Riker go on the landing uh, parties and, and so on. But, you know, in this episode, I'm like, here's a, a scientific anomaly that this planet should not exist. It's too young. It's too small, Steve. Everything you pointed out. And the science officer of the Enterprise is not going. I mean, it makes no sense. <laughs> but someone who is going, who we get to meet in the transporter room, is geologist Diamato. Diamato was played by Arthur Batanidis, uh, who was on TV in The Twilight Zone, Dick Van Dyke Show, I Spy, The Wild Wild West, Mission Impossible, and Happy Days. I mean, if you look at his IMDb page, it just keeps going and going and going. And he usually played a baddie uh, on the big screen, you can you could have caught him in Police Academy 2, Police Academy 3, Police Academy 4. Mm. He skipped over Police Academy 5, but he did do Police Academy 6, and that was his last credit. I got a weird thing to say about him. I don't think he fits. He doesn't seem like a Starfleet officer to me. And it's, I don't know why. I mean, maybe it's just that he's... His age and his look is all the Starfleet officers we've seen have been, you know, super handsome and beautiful. But like, I don't know. It, it's weird casting for me. What is your take on that, Dave? I mean, I've always liked Diamato. He's a soft spoken guy that seems like he really likes his job and really wants to perform. But I understand what Steve is saying. He, he feels like an outsider. Yeah. He doesn't feel like a member of the crew. And I, I don't quite know how to put my finger on it. It's uh it's like Scotty saying the Enterprise feels wrong. It's what's interesting is, uh, you know, during my rewatch of That Which Survives, just watching Diamato in the transporter room, you know, Steve, you mentioned he doesn't fit. Well, what I notice is his uniform does not fit because mm. that shirt was really, really, really tight on him. <laughs> um, but also, I mean, it's I mean, he's really uh, I, I would say he's idealistic. I, I, Dave, I agree with you completely. He, he, he loves his job. He seems like a nice guy. And, and initially, you know, for the, for the short time that we actually see him, 
when we're on the planet's surface. So I think that it actually meshes pretty well with Kirk and McCoy and Sulu. I'll tell you what I think he's there for, which I have no evidence of. But I think the producers went, you know, we always kill red guys. <laughs> Let's yeah. not kill a red guy this time. Let's kill somebody else. Let's kill a blue shirt. <laughs> um, uh, but we're getting ready to beam down. And just as we're about to energize the transporters, a woman appears in the transporter room. Wait, you must not go. And touches the transporter engineer. And he goes down just as they beam out. And what's interesting, this is the first time that you realize that you are still aware of your surroundings and able to move mm. while you are in the transporter. Because while the beam is activated, you know, you see Kirk and McCoy like react to this person who just popped out of nowhere, literally yeah. in the transporter room. When the transporter chief dies, I mean, that's some really horrible acting, in my opinion. I mean, he, you know, he clutches his stomach and. You know, she touches his shoulder and he does this weird thing where he clutches his stomach and kind of leans over. It, it just there's these hokey kind of moments in here that just kept pulling me out of it. OK, so the transporter engineer, in case you were wondering, because when I do my rewatches for Enterprise Incidents, I rewatch the episodes with the subtitles on. And I can't tell you how many little details I've picked up just by watching it with the subtitles like, oh, that's what they're doing or, oh, that's where they're going or, oh, that's that person's name. So the ensign who goes down in a moment's notice there is Ensign Wyatt, who is played by Brad Forrest. That's just some trivia. But I, I love that moment when LaCira, of course, we don't know her name is LaCira yet. She just appears and it's just like it's such a dramatic moment. So LaCira is played by Lee Merriweather, who, of course – most people will remember as playing Catwoman in the Batman movie uh, from 1966, but she was also the very first Miss America to be crowned on television in 1954. Hmm. Uh, she was also on TV on shows like Dr. Kildare, Perry Mason. She was a regular on the Time Tunnel. She was in Mission Impossible, The Love Boat. Uh, she played Lily Munster in the uh, – the Munsters Today, the revival series. And she was also on All My Children for many, many years. Now, what's interesting is that in the early outlines for That Which Survives, when Fontana submitted her outline, LaCira was not even in the teleplay. Like all the things that were happening to the landing party were happening from the computerized security system on the planet. But it was actually the producers, Freiberger and Singer, who said, we need a face to represent the threat here. And that is when the character of LaCira was created. And then they beam down to the planet and they're like, what the heck was that? Jim, did you see what I saw? That woman attacked Ensign Wyatt. Captain Kirkton. Captain. They get hit by an earthquake, which I think looks terrible. I think it looks like we're into we're into lost in space sort of level of cheap uh set yeah, effects it's like they have sets on a gimbal or something or I don't, i'm not there's quite just sure. a bunch of dudes shaking things that's yeah. I'm, I'm, i don't even think it's a gimbal what, what uh, what's interesting is that the episode came in eleven thousand dollars under budget now the the and i'm glad you brought this up because i agree the the quake effect looks so fake and phony if they just would have done the usual shaking of the camera thing i think that would have been a much much more effective feeling but 
I guess the the producers wanted to really show a quake effect, and the quake effect was actually designed by, of course, Matt Jeffries. But it looks so phony, and if they just would have shook, you know, did the shaking of the camera thing, the episode would probably come in even more under budget than it actually mm. was. Um, and it's not just shaking down on the planet; up on the Enterprise, it's shaking, and the crew goes down, and then the shaking's done. Are you all right? Yes, I believe no permanent damage was done. What happened? The occipital area of my head seems to have impacted with the arm of the chair. This is like Spock at the very beginning of the show when they hadn't really quite figured him out. I don't think this makes any sense for Spock to say now. It's a dumb joke. No, Mr. Spock. I meant what happened to us. That we have yet to ascertain. Mr. Spock, the planet's gone. Again, Dave, like how do you think a moment like this would have played out, let's say, if if it was in the second season or even the first season. They're going for something here with Spock, this this weird humor thing that just doesn't work. And, it, and they do it over and over and over. I think if this were a second season episode, th- this would be a compelling moment. Here's the other thing about this scene, because uh, I agree, uh, Dave, that there's no sense of urgency here. Instead of Spock making a dumb joke, he should be calling for damage report and trying to figure out what happened. And, you know, the, the Enterprise just got hit with something really powerful and we're not dealing with it. And I have another problem with this scene, which is I don't think it should be in the teaser. I think they should have moved it to Act One because we go back to the planet. The Enterprise, it's gone. It's right. There's nothing there. Could it just be gone? What the devil does that mean, Jim? For one thing, it means we're stranded. See, I think this is a really, really good teaser of a sort of okay episode. Like you had this woman appear in the transporter room, kill the transporter officer. They beam down to the planet. They have the quake. The Enterprise, meanwhile, is transported. Uh, you know, we're going to find out almost a thousand light years across the galaxy. And you know, Spock will give the exact number to that. But I, I think this is a, a really good teaser. Again, by second half of third season standards, I forgot how good this teaser was because I hadn't seen the episode in a long time. Well, but this is why this is so remember when I said that I thought that scene on the Enterprise should have been moved to act one Uh is when they say, you know, the Enterprise is gone and we're stranded. We, the audience, know the Enterprise is okay. Good point. If we hadn't seen that scene and just had the Enterprise is gone, we would have been, oh, no, this is it would be much, much more dramatic than it is now. I see what you're saying, and I completely agree. So so like if he stayed on the planet, they had the quake, the Enterprise is gone, like we're watching thinking like oh where is the enterprise and we're not going to know until you get to the first act that oh it's okay it's just you know 990.7 light years away yeah that would have been much stronger i think the enterprise must have blown up that would explain the high radiation readings wouldn't it captain if the matter antimatter we stop guessing mr sulu i'm trying to establish a pattern okay i want to say another thing here just like spock seems like he's cranky i mean i know the landing party stuck on the planet they think the enterprise is gone but Kirk is kind of really hard on Sulu in this episode. <laughs> yeah, he really is. And and uh, and it's a weird exchange about the radiation, too, because Sulu gives this explanation where he says, well, the radiation would account for the Enterprise blowing up. But then when they cut to Kirk, Kirk is saying there was no radiation. So it's just a really confusing, muddled piece of dialogue to follow when you're listening. You're right. Why is Kirk belittling sulu here when 
I, I don't understand where where any of this came from. Could it be the Enterprise hit us? Hit the planet? Once in Siberia, there was a meteor so great that it flattened whole forests and was felt as far... Mr. Sulu, if I'd wanted a Russian history lesson, I'd have brought along Mr. Chekhov. In the earlier tele version of the teleplay, uh, Chekhov was on the planet with the Amato and McCoy and Kirk. But Walter Koenig was doing regional theater on the East Coast, so he had, he had actually missed a few episodes. So they gave all of Chekhov's lines to Sulu, and Chekhov's not in the episode at all, but you know, you kind of feel his presence because you know Kirk brings him up. Uh, but we're we're trying to speculate what could have happened here. You know, don't shut me down. I'm just throwing out some ideas. <laughs> Uh, and by the way, in case anyone's curious, the uh, meteor that hit in Siberia was in 1908. It was known as the Tunguska uh, event. It knocked down 80 million trees over 830 square miles. Wow. Surprised it, is, it didn't do the dinosaur effect and just like wipe everything out. Well, it is the largest meteor to hit in recorded history, and, it, and it's tiny compared to the dinosaur ones. Wow. Um, here's my problem with this scene. They're so flippant about the possible destruction of the Enterprise. And you think about, like, compare this to City on the Edge of Forever, which has essentially the same moment. The Enterprise is gone, we're stranded here, what happened? And it is heavy and dramatic and serious and profound. And this is like, they kind of say, yeah, maybe the Enterprise blew up. Oh, well, you know, it's, there's <laughs> nothing going on emotionally here. Oh, that's a great point. Yeah, I mean, I know that they're in survival mode, but, like, where's Kirk, like, mourning the loss of his, of his ship and his crew, if that's the case. Yeah, or, or instead, of, instead of having Kirk shut down Sulu because he brings up, you know, because he's speculating, what if Sulu is worried about his friend Chekhov or, or, or McCoy is thinking about, you know, Nurse Chapel and what could have happened and Kirk goes, hey, we need to focus on survival. You know, we don't have time to do that right. Then it would be an emotional scene rather than just a talky scene. Right. For Kirk to say, listen, this is a matter of survival – it comes after he's really snarky, so it doesn't work. Yeah, he's totally snarky. But he gives some orders about, you know, finding food and water. Um, we go back up to the Enterprise. There's apparently no damage except some bumps and bruises. And then we hear that the transporter officer is dead. And Spock calls down to sickbay. And this doctor answers who I feel like I've seen before. You have seen him before, Steve Morris. In fact, you've seen him in a private little war because Dr. Mbenga returns and is once again played by Booker Bradshaw, uh, his second of two episodes as Dr. Mbenga. For everyone who wishes they could have seen more of Mbenga, well, here you have Strange New Worlds. He's in all 10 episodes. <laughs> what bothers me is the stars, Mr. Spock. The stars. Yes, sir. They're wrong. Lieutenant Rada is played by Naomi Pollock, uh, who was born as Naomi Newman, and she appeared as a Native American woman in the Paradise Syndrome hmm. uh, episode of Star Trek. But she didn't do much acting on the on the, the small screen at all. In fact, uh, one of her only uh, credits is she played a character named Mara, of all people, in the, the series Korg 70,000 BC. I don't think she's that great. I think she's somewhat weak. What do you think, um, Dave? Yeah, she's a little stilted. It's uh, not believable. Well, Roddenberry actually liked that they added uh, an Indian character to the to the episode, but he said, why don't you make her look more Indian if you're going to add an Indian character? He said, it's a great idea, but you should have just like, you know, leaned into that 
And he maybe even I, I mean you might even like cast someone who was Indian. I, I know it's crazy. It's a crazy <laughs> thought for the 1968, but just saying. It doesn't make any sense. But somehow I'd say that in a flash we've been knocked 1,000 light years away from where we were. 990.7 light years to be exact, Lieutenant. I'm done with that joke. I, I really am. I just like we've done it enough. Well, um, we're going to hear it a lot more just in this episode. So yeah. brace yourself, pal. <laughs> but that's not possible. Nothing can do that. Mr. Scott, since we are here, your statement is not only illogical, but also unworthy of refutation. I feel like Spock has gone back to the Galileo 7. Yeah, that's a really good point. He's regressed a little bit. Maybe Spock is feeling a little out of sorts after his experience with the Platonians. Uh, in which he was absolutely, utterly humiliated. And he just, maybe he just needs a little bit, a little more me time. You know what I mean? <laughs> Our ship's chronometers registered a matter of only a few seconds. Therefore, we were displaced through space in some manner which I am unable to fathom. What you're saying is that the planet didn't blow up and the captain and the others, they're still alive. Please, Mr. Scott, restrain your leaps of illogic. I have said nothing. I was merely speculating. One other observation about the third season is that I feel like Scotty has, or James Doohan rather, he's playing overplaying Scotty just a little bit. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like he, he's, he's much more emotional in season three than he was in season two. In season two, when he was in command of the Enterprise, he was cool as a cucumber. Yeah. And I feel like he's he's a little uh, – he, he's going a little further with it for – I don't know. Maybe he just realizes that the screenplays aren't as good and he's like trying to compensate for it like Shatner does. Yeah. But uh, it's just – it's not as good. Yeah, but at least he's – there's a sense of urgency. Right. Yep. At least he brings that to it because there is Spock, Spock with all of these, these goofy jokes and these – these retorts, it just really takes me out of the episode. Yep, yep, I agree. You asked for an autopsy report. It's only preliminary, but the cause of death seems to have been cellular disruption. Explain. Well, it's as though every cell in the body had been individually blasted from inside. So I wonder how many doctors the Enterprise has. How many do you think? Well, there's uh, there's McCoy, there's Mabenga, and Mabenga refers to a Dr. Sanchez. Right. So... Sounds like there's at least three. <laughs> it's a weird thing because what you're doing, I think they're trying to make us feel like the Enterprise is more busy than it, It, despite the fact that we can't afford any extras anymore, you know? But just saying it is just kind of weird to me. Mr. Scott, since the Enterprise is obviously functional, I suggest we return to our starting place at top warp speed. Aye, sir. Can you give me warp eight? And ice. I love Scotty's line here. Aye, sir. And maybe a wee bit more. I'll sit on the warp engines myself and nurse them. And then another dumb Spock yep. joke. <laughs> that position, Mr. Scott, would not only be unavailing, but also undignified. I remember I was in New York visiting extended family, and they showed that which survives on Channel 11. And on Channel 11 in New York, the, the, the Star Trek episodes were stripped of about five or six minutes to make way for more commercial time. And I remember watching That Which Survives. And when, when Scotty says, I, sir, maybe a wee bit more, they cut it back to the planet. And when I'm watching, you know, the full version of it, you know, the complete version of it, Scotty goes on about, I'll sit on the engines and nurse them. And then you hear the dumb Spock joke. I went, wow, for once, I actually agreed with the syndication yeah. edit. Yep. <laughs> yeah, because every one of those things just is like, 
you know, grabbing you by the scruff of the neck and pulling you out of the episode. Yeah, totally. Um, so we're back on the planet, and what we find out is that the vegetation is inedible, they can't find any water, and that they've discovered uh, an organism that's almost like a virus. Like a plant parasite. Yeah. We'll split up the amount of See if you can find underground water. Yes, sir. Sulu, run an atmospheric analysis. Hi, sir. Bones, see if you can find out anything about the vegetation and your parasite. Sulu is out looking around, and we hear music, and he calls to the captain and says, Captain, I was making a standard magnetic sweep. From zero, I suddenly got a reading that was off the scale. Then a reverse of polarity, and now I get nothing. I've never seen anything like this reading. Like a door open and then close again. We're going to hear that line a lot yeah. throughout this episode. Which I don't exactly knows, know what it means. Is I it- agree. I completely agree. I was, I'm confused by it. She's a projection who's obviously beaming in and out. Is it, is it her release? And if it's her release, does it put her, you know, 500 yards away and she's got to walk? <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> That's a really good point. Really well, good point. Exactly. Because later on, they actually make it sound like there, it is an actual door opening and closing because we find a door, but she doesn't need a door. She's transporting. And let's, let's, let's say what's going on because this whole thing doesn't make a whole bunch of sense. So what's actually going on is that there's like an automated defense system that is protecting the planet, right? That's what's happening. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Keep off the grass. And it has two sort of elements, one of which is this woman that goes around and if she touches individual people who she knows who they are, she can kill them, but only them, which is really weird. And but it also had the power to transport the Enterprise a thousand light years away. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Why didn't it just destroy everybody? Uh, Obviously, you could do it. Why go through the trouble of transporting the Enterprise 990.7 light years away, and then being able to send a an image of Lysira to the ship to, to sabotage it. To sabotage right. it. Why didn't you just freaking blow it up? I mean, it just made no sense. Well, and then why have this limitation? If you could transport the Enterprise that far away, it shouldn't be that hard to kill Captain Kirk. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, just beam him out into space. Yeah, that's this whole. But anyway, (laughs) yeah. But um, anyway, (laughs) we go to Diamato, who's looking around, examining stuff, and then Diamato turns around, and there she is. Do not be afraid. I'm not. Uh, And yes, he is. He he looks scared to death. (laughs) Yeah. And yet he doesn't call the Captain Kirk at this moment, which would be the normal thing to do. He's like, I'm just going to chat with this alien who I saw hurt someone in the transporter room by touching them, but I'm not going to say anything. You are Lieutenant Diamato, senior geologist. That's right. How did you know that? From the spaceship Enterprise. Why does she know who they are? I don't know. Like, how does the computer that's creating these images of Lucera know all these things about about the crew and about the, about the ship? And the other thing is, uh, she's a striking figure. Yes, she it, definitely not, is. You know, so every time someone sees her, when Sulu sees her later, Diamato sees her, they're like, hey, wait a minute. You're that lady who was in the transporter. But but that realization comes after, you know, a few minutes of conversation. It's like, who do you think this person is? <laughs> it just doesn't make sense. 
Well, and this is like, it's totally fine to have a mystery that we have to figure out. That's classic Star Trek. There's a bunch of weird stuff going on, and slowly but surely, we're going to put the clues together and figure out what it is. But once you figure out what it is, it should, at least in a science fiction sense, make some sense. Right. Like, oh, I get why that happened. I don't understand why she knows who people are. I don't understand why she can only kill one person at a time. I don't understand why this planet is doing what it's doing. There's just so much that doesn't make sense. Yep. But she steps forward. She says, I am for you, Lieutenant Yamato. And she walks forward with her hands out. And then we cut away. And McCoy reports that about some life form reading with tremendous intensity was there and then not there. That didn't make sense to me either, because there's never another time where there's an enormous life form reading. And when she's standing in front of them, he's scanning her at one point and says mm -hmm. she doesn't register as a life form. Right. So what is the life form that they just scanned? I don't I, I didn't understand that as well. Diamato section, come in. Kirk to Diamato, come in. Head over that way, and there they find Diamato's body. Every cell in his body has been disrupted. And in earlier versions of the of the outline, or definitely earlier version of that which survives, uh, the first crew member to die was actually named Dawson, not Diamato. So they changed the name. But the way in which they find him is actually much more gruesome. Uh, he's torn limb from limb by an wow. unseen force and stuffed behind rocks. Wow. So, yeah, that would not have flown <laughs> no. in 1969 on wow. NBC. <laughs> we come back in Act 2, and Kirk is going to try to use his phaser to dig a grave, but the phaser will not cut through these rocks. Even at 8,000 degrees. Centigrade. Centigrade, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Sulu, I'd explain this place a little better if we knew what the substance is. I know it was Diomato's field. Let's see what you can find out. Then we cut back to the Enterprise. And we are at holding at warp 8.4. It's 11 and a half hours to get back to the planet. Um, and actually, again, wait, if the ETA is actually 11.337 solar hours. Get it right, will you? Yeah. <laughs> Spock here. Mr. Spock, the ship feels wrong. I actually like that Scotty can just sense that something is wrong totally. with the ship. If anybody's going to have the right uh, or certainly the, the ability to say something just doesn't feel right about the Enterprise. It's Scotty. I suggest you avoid emotionalism and simply keep your instruments correct. Spock out. The note I wrote down here is Galileo. Yep. Mm -hmm. This is mm -hmm. exactly. Well, and the thing, too, is later on in the episode, we're going to hear that Spock did pay attention to the fact that Scotty felt the Enterprise. He, sh he could have said that right here. Yeah. Noted. He says yeah. later. Right. Yeah. yeah. And then Spock picks up this weird device that he plays with for the whole episode. And this device, if that device looks familiar, you you know what that device is? Is uh, it the Dave? one that controlled him in yeah, Spock's brain? Right? In Spock's brain, yeah. Yes, yes. Spock is picking up the device that was basically the remote control to control him in Spock's brain. Now, <laughs> I mean, I have no idea, like what this thing is, or or what certainly what the purpose is of this episode. But you know, it it does cut to him playing around with it quite a bit. Well, it's interesting because there's no readout on it. There's no screen. So he just presses buttons and turns knobs. But, but, but is it an abacus? I mean, what is and it? He, and he picks it up like it's like just sitting there on the navigations console. Like it just like leans in. You see him pick it up. I'm like, what was that that was sitting there? It was just really weird uh, 
placement, like totally unnecessary. <laughs> I, I really wonder where it came from. And I wonder if it was like a Nimoy thought of like, I think Mr. Spock should have a thing, you should know, have a he, problem. Yeah. 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 It, it's totally weird. Uh, we're back on the planet. Kirk is fig- finishing up making sort of a tomb with stones. It looks so lonely there. It would be worse if he had company. Doctor, how can you joke about it? None of this reads right to me. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so at this point, in a rare moment of continuity on the original series, you know, beyond the the beyond what we've been doing, which is establishing continuity on Enterprise incidents, Sulu actually brings up the silicon creature from the planet Janus 6. And he is referring to the Horta from Devil in the Dark. You remember on Janus 6, the silicone creatures... But our instruments recorded that. They were life forms. They registered as life forms. Which is what Dave said a minute ago. He did say he's found life form reading. So this, you know... Yeah, exactly. Back to the Enterprise. Scotty is looking around, trying to figure out why it feels wrong. And he calls over Watkins and says... Check the bypass valve on the matter-antimatter reaction chamber. Make sure it's not overheating. And Mr. Scott, the board shows correct. I didn't ask you to check the board, lad. Yes, sir. This is where I'm talking about where, where Jimmy is just a bit, you know, over the top. Watkins goes off to this blinking panel. Watkins is played by Kenneth Washington. Okay. <laughs> uh, so Kenneth Washington goes off to check out this blinking panel. And there is Lucira again. And again, he doesn't immediately say, Mr. Scott, there's this real weird woman in this room. Like she's not wearing a uniform. She clearly doesn't belong there. She doesn't, she's not made up like a, well, maybe she could have been made up like, a, you know, the women on the enterprise, but, but something is obviously wrong. I would have been like, Scotty help. Yeah. <laughs> well, it brings, um, up a, it brings up an, an interesting question, which is, is Spock the only alien on the enterprise? The only non-human. Hmm. Well, I, I mean, I know Arix is running running around there somewhere. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you know, because we'll see him in the animated series. Right, in the animated series. Show me this unit. I wish to learn. And then he naturally just starts telling her stuff about the Enterprise. Well, this is the matter-antimatter integrator control. That's the cutoff switch. Not correct. That is the emergency overload bypass. So if she knew what this thing really was, why did she ask him? And if he didn't, was he not telling her the truth on purpose? And if he was, how did she know that he wasn't telling her the truth? I don't understand it at all. I always assumed that he was deliberately not telling her the truth because, yeah. I mean, he he must have known, obviously, that something was very, very wrong with this picture. But why he didn't, you know, say, I'm not going to tell you that, you know, uh, and immediately call for Mr. Scott or anybody close by who could assist him. Uh, it just feels extremely contrived. And every time I see this episode, this moment takes me out of the episode because yeah. I'm just questioning everything about it. Well, and if if he isn't telling her the truth, how does she know what it is? Right. And if she knew what it is, why did she ask him anything in the first place? And Why ask him? Yeah. Yeah. There's an interesting moment where a performance moment where it happens a couple times here where he tells her what it is and he's lying to her. And she then kind of closes her eyes like she's receiving information. Oh. Is feeding her information. And, and she does it again uh, a couple seconds later, just before she kills Watkins. And I wonder, is she receiving information about Watkins so she can adapt herself to kill him? 
That's a really good point. I never, I never realized that, but that's an excellent perspective. Dave, I am almost certain that in some of the drafts or some of the ideas, that is what they were trying to do. And it's almost like they had like an interesting science fiction idea, but they didn't quite pursue it all the way, you know, because that would have been really interesting. Like she, she got to know her victim and then that allowed her to kill the person. And you could even, because they almost hinted it later, like she almost has to love the thing that she's killing and, and understand it on that deep level. Well, that would have been interesting stuff, but we never get into that. I am for you, Mr. Watkins. And only now does he yell out to Scotty. Scott, there's a strange woman who knows the entire plan of the Enterprise. And then, it, ah! Yep. Yeah. <laughs> and Scott runs in and we see her disappear in a kind of cool, flattening, two-dimensional effect. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> My assistant Watkins is dead. Do you know what he died of, Mr. Scott? I didn't see it happen. But his last words were a warning cry about some strange woman. Back on the planet, we're talking about the the alloy that the planet's made of that couldn't have evolved naturally. And finally say, are you suggesting this might be an artificial planet? Which it seems to me they could have figured that out a while ago. <laughs> yeah. It's dark. Let's get some rest. Tomorrow we'll have to find some food and some water or it's going to be a very unpleasant stay. What I do like about this moment, though, is you can see that the sky is getting darker. Mm-hmm. So, uh, th- you know, that was a nice touch that they actually showed that it is it is getting darker Wait, on the planet. You're saying that you're happy that when he said it's getting darker, that they tur- that they lowered the lights. Well, it, <laughs> I think least, that's really fate praise. It, honestly, it, 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 I agree with you, but I I actually did notice that the, the color of the sky actually reflected what they were talking about, which was, you know, sure. for, for this for this late into the third season where they had one foot out the door. You know, you, you got to give faint praise where you see it. <laughs> I don't know. My bar is higher than <laughs> than it being darker when they say it's darker. <laughs> like, that seems like basic filmmaking to me. <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, but Sulu says he's going to take the first watch. Kirk and McCoy lie down on some very uncomfortable looking rocks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Take Diamato's tricorder. Set it for automatic distress. You'll never can tell. I see. What does automatic distress do? I had the same tricorder? question. Yeah. And so Sulu clicks this button and the tricorder starts beeping. And as a kid, I always thought, what, what is that? That's cool. What's uh, the tricorder yeah. doing? Right. You know, is it, is it a perimeter field? Is it, you know, setting up some kind of uh, alarm system? But we never know because the villain just walks up and just turns the thing off. I, I, yeah. I just, I always thought it was like, like a, an alarm. Like if there was a. Sure. Uh, proximity alert of some right. kind. Something's right. getting closer. It starts beeping faster. But Dave, you're right. She just walks right up and shuts it off. Now, now, granted, when they're taking readings on her later, McCoy is not showing up anything at all on his tricorder. So maybe that's why she was able to go up and just shut it off. Right. But why even do that if you're yeah. not going to show up on the thing anyway? <laughs> yeah. Right. Again, it's just a lot of there are a lot of ideas, hmm. but they don't all fit together uh, on the bridge. We hear about the autopsy on Watkins and it's the same basic thing. Uh, and again, Spock is kind of a jerk shutting down, you know, Mbenga's guessing. My guess, doctor, would be valueless. I suggest we refrain from guessing and find some facts. Spock out. You know, when you compare Spock in this episode to the way he was in the Tholian web, yeah. Spock was very, you know, dead serious in the Tholian web, very aware of the stakes. And he was also taking a gamble by staying in the area to try to retrieve the captain from the from the interface on the Defiant. 
Uh, in this one, I mean, you know, they're racing back to to get to their where they were, but Spock's demeanor with the crew is very, very different, and it's off putting. It, it really is because we commented, I think, in the Tholian web of how warm and connected and proud he was with the crew. Like he yep. really, he he was supportive. Yeah, especially that last act. Yeah, you're right. Um, we're back on the planet, and this is the moment that you mentioned where the fingers turn off whatever's going on on the tricorder. Sulu sees her again, doesn't call out to Kirk, who's like right around the corner. You are Lieutenant Sulu. You were born on the planet Earth. You're helmsman for the Enterprise. And then he says, all right, the captain will want to talk to you that way. You do not understand. I have come for you. What do you want? I want to touch you. And again, only then does he figure out that she's the woman that was on the Enterprise. But he also figures out that the planet is hollow, which is a good observation. Mm. Heat back. Stop or I'll shoot. I don't want to have to kill a woman. I have multiple problems with that line. <laughs> the first one is that the phaser has a stun setting. <laughs> like, right. Are we not talking about that? Right. So it wouldn't necessarily have to kill her. And the other thing about that line is that it is a strangely sexist line. Yeah. Is that someone in this, you know, in the Federation where apparently we don't care about gender or color or size, all those things don't matter, would have no more problem killing a woman than killing a man. It's it is a, it's a weird kind of sexism, but it is a kind of sexism. If that episode was filmed today, well, A, I don't think that episode would have been filmed today. <laughs> but uh, if it was filmed today, I'm, I, I'd like to think that that line would not be there. Um, well, and there's another moment coming up with Kirk where he delivers a line that's yes, there is, there is a really, Oh yeah, you're right. Up. You're right. <laughs> um, and he fires like a warning shot that, ex- that makes an explosion on the ground, but again, doesn't wake up Kirk and McCoy who are right around the corner. And then finally he calls out for captain Kirk. Um, she goes after uh, Sulu. He trips over a rock and she touches him. He gets a grazing touch, which causes him to scream. And then there Kirk and McCoy. Are there. I am for him. I am for Lieutenant Sulu. Don't let her touch the captain. That's how Tomato died. Faces won't stop her. She touches Kirk, and it's actually a pretty good edit the way she like touches him, and he looks at her hand on his chest, and he's fine. And then he like like flexes it off and pushes her back, and then you start to see Lucera act like like she's stumbling and she's like you know losing her train of thought, like she's off, like she's conflicted at this moment. So I think this is actually a really interesting side to the character of Lucera. She's not just acting like like a, a machine. She's got some remorse about what she's doing. I think they were trying to do a little bit of what Landrew is or a little bit of Roger Corby in the sense that in this machine, there is some memory of the original person that they can reach a little bit. Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I don't think they pursue it in a way that makes any sense or pays off in any way. And then Kirk asks, and I'm assuming this is what you're referring to, Dave. Are there any men on this planet? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, is he going like, is there a dude I can talk to somewhere? Is that that the point? What is the point of that question? It's. Why not just ask if there are any other people on this planet? Why men? <laughs> and it's similar in Spock's brain where he, he's talking to the women who obviously aren't that bright and say, well, where are the people that, where are the men that run this place, basically? Yeah. yeah because yeah, obviously yeah. it's not you. Yeah. <laughs> Ouch. Um, uh, and she backs up and does that cool turn into a line disappearance. Oh, did you see that? Maybe Spock was wrong. Perhaps this is a ghost planet. 
I'm like, what does that have to do with dude, that? haven't you seen a transporter? Like, exactly. This isn't that weird. Even though Sulu has a prominent role in this episode, it occurred to me while I was watching this and thinking back to Sulu's presence on Star Trek when he came back to the series after filming the Green Berets and missing like, you know, nine or 10 episodes. You know, in the first season, Sulu was very prominent. Yeah. Even in the first half of the second season or the first few episodes of the second season, even with Chekhov there, Sulu was very prominent. I mean, look at his look at his role in Mirror Mirror. But then he misses all those episodes. And when he came back, I feel like the character of Sulu just lost a lot of momentum for the rest of the series. Like he he does his thing, he's at the helm, you know, he's a part of the landing party in this episode. But outside of like the the traditional Sulu lines, you know, uh, ahead War Bun and, you know, uh, Phaser's Locked on Target, I just feel like the character was not just sort of like he was just there. Uh, that being away for all those episodes like really did a disservice to the way the producers and the writers really saw the character and developed the character further. I totally agree. And, and it's like it's it, a good writing test is if you could swap a different character in and give them the same lines and it would work, then you didn't write that character well. Right. He doesn't say anything that is close to the guy who loves botany and fencing and has a sense of humor. And, you know, that guy's not here. Yeah, I was I was almost hoping that earlier in the episode when Kirk asks him for a report on the plants and on the, the foliage in the area, I was hoping that he was, that, that, mm. they, were, that they would have nourished that a little bit with, with some of his background in botany, but uh, great point. But they well, did. even even on the bridge of the Enterprise, when Kirk is rounding up the landing party, he could have said, you know, some kind of comment alluding to his fascination with botany, making this, oh, this is right up your alley. Why don't you join us on the landing party? Absolutely. Because there's no reason for a helmsman to. Exactly my point. Yeah, exactly. And then we he- hear a line which I just think makes no sense at all. Against the people be captain such evil and she's so so beautiful i i literally wrote down what the f-? yeah like, <laughs> and kirk agrees yeah yes i know he says yeah yes i know i mean this is star trek these are supposed to be sophisticated people and to say something just so stupid it just i agree uh we're back on the enterprise no sign of any in- intruder box says cancel red alert maintain security He's still playing with that weird little thing. Yeah. How did she get off the ship, sir? Presumably the same way she got off. There's no reason to believe that she's off the ship, I think. What are the chances of the captain and the others being alive? Instead of, like, giving her some hope, he yeah. gives her some really sarcastic comment that's that puts her down. And she just kind of, like, shakes her head and she goes, yes, Mr. Spock. It's, it actually is literally this, the things he did wrong on Galileo 7 when people were asking, what are the chances we're going to find the Enterprise will find us? And he says, terrible, you know, doesn't offer any hope whatsoever. Mr. Spock, speed is increased to warp 8.8. And we try to slow down to warp 7 and it keeps going up. Now it's at 8.9. Negative effect on power reduction. Speed is still increasing. Aye, Mr. Spock. And I've found out why. The emergency bypass control of the matter-antimatter integrator is fused. We should reach maximum overload in about 15 minutes. And now we have the third of Spock correcting 
for an exact number. I would calculate 14.87 minutes, Mr. Scott. Those few seconds will not make any difference, Mr. Spock, because you and I and the rest of the crew will no longer be here to bandy it back and forth. This thing is going to blow up, and there's nothing in the universe can stop it. That's the end of Act 2. Scotty's very calm about the whole thing. (laughs) Everyone is. This is a nitpicky, this is a full nitpick. But when you introduce a time, like 14.37 seconds, Mm -hmm. you need to, you should at least to some degree pay attention to it. I don't expect a show to hit it exactly like take a stopwatch and they do exactly what they said, but they have no relationship to what the times they keep saying are in the course of the episode. I see what you're saying, yeah. And and the reason I, I feel like it's a bit of an important nitpick is that it coincides with all of their behavior, not having the urgency that they should have based on the circumstances that they create, you know? Well, I, I feel that's like what I said about, oh, how do you think this episode would have done in season two? Can you imagine a director like Joseph Pevney or Mark Daniels or Ralph Sineski directing that which survives. Like you would have felt that urgency. You would have felt the ticking clock. You would have felt the the tension and suspense as the enterprise speed is increasing and they're running out of time. And I just I agree with you. Even though it's said and set up in this in this way, I don't I don't feel it as effectively as I did like when Kirk was standing on the 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 constellation, yeah. you know, about to get uh, eaten up by the doomsday machine. And it's so interesting that it's performance based. That's I mean, it's it's lacking performance. And I, I wonder why that happened. You know, I mean, through the rest of this episode, Spock's like, you have 10 minutes left. You know, there's yeah. no I mean, he's just like, yeah. And then he walks out casually and he goes, I'm going to go up to the bridge and run this computer simulation. And it's very wacky that, that they they their performances are so uh, watered down. Well, yep. there's so it's all the elements of filmmaking because like Doom, Doomsday Machine being probably the best ticking clock, the best tension rising episode maybe of the whole series. Yeah. But you know what's happening because you hear the music, you see the Doomsday Machine turning towards the constellation or turning towards the Enterprise. The music is building. The scenes are cutting quickly. The performances are there. Everything is saying, oh, no, we're about to die. Yeah. Yeah. And there's well. nothing in this that's saying that. Well, other but, than just saying it, but you know? unfortunately, there's there there is a a feeling that I feel like, especially because we're going in production order, uh, uh, sort of the rod is setting in. Yeah, morale is really down again. Like every creative force that made Star Trek what it was, those Fab Four of Roddenberry, Kuhn, Fontana, and Justman are gone. You know, even. Like even though John Lucas wrote this episode, it was his last episode. They didn't let him direct it. He should have directed it because, like, look how great he directed uh, the Ultimate Computer, Dave. I mean, that was a last episode we had you on for. There's just a feeling, just like I just feel like Star Trek by this point, they're almost kind of like sort of shrugging their shoulders. It is what it is. Let's just finish out the season. We're back in Act Three on the planet, examining Sulu's arms, trying to figure out why he's alive. Sulu's alive because I intervened. But that raises an even worse question. Yes. Why didn't she kill you? I don't think it's a worse question. <laughs> and then Kirk says she's not through yet. <laughs> I'm like, what does that mean? How do you know? You don't understand anything about this person. We're back on the Enterprise. Scotty's doing some stuff. That's useless. And there's no question. It's deliberate. Sabotage. Aye. And a thorough job. Again, I just want to say one more time. She threw the Enterprise a thousand light years away 
and then went to it as it's coming back and sabotaged it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's just really bizarre. You said it was fused. How? Well, that's what worries me. Worries, Mr. Scott? Well, it's fused all right, but it would take all the power of our main phaser banks to do it. Interesting. And I wrote down, this is all wrong. Where's the hurry? They're just chatting about this thing. They are. You, you just, as a viewer, you feel no sense of urgency. As I recall the pattern of our fuel flow, there is an access tube leading to the matter-antimatter reaction chamber. Why didn't Scotty think of this? Good point. Maybe because uh, it's not meant to be used while it's activated. <laughs> but it's, but I mean, this is, again, it's like, why, use your characters for what they're good at. Scotty knows the Enterprise better than anybody. Yeah, right. It'd be much more interesting if he was saying, if he said, hey, there's this access point, and Spock was saying, it's not supposed to be used. A man might die in there. Then there's a conflict in the scene, which there isn't right now. And I'm not even sure a man can live in a crawlway in the energy stream of the magnetic field that bottles up the antimatter. I shall try. You'll be killed, man. Unless a solution is found quickly, that fate awaits all of us. And then Scotty, who a moment before said, you'll be killed, man, says, okay, I'll do it. Yeah. And then we go back to this idea of the ship feel being wrong. And at first, Scott apologizes. I, it was an emotional statement. I don't expect you to understand it. And I do like this moment. I note it, Mr. Scott, without necessarily understanding it. I propose to run an analysis through the ship's computers, comparing the present condition of the Enterprise with her ideal condition. Mr. Spock, we don't have time for that. We have 12 minutes and 27 seconds. Which, by the way, I did do. I did actually take a stopwatch and look at all this. And of course, it doesn't. It's not even close to what they say the time is. Um, And they're just kind of lollygagging around these conversations about running this computer analysis. And we go back to the planet. Whatever destructive power this woman has seems to be aimed at one specific person at one specific time. If I'm correct, when she reappears, the other two might be able to protect the one she's after by interposing their bodies. By the way, one of the things that makes me know that this show isn't very good, I'm bored saying the lines. I mean, like, just I'm, I'm looking at things going, can I skip that? It's just... You know, can, uh, I, can I, honestly, I, I feel the same way, <laughs> to be honest yeah. with you. I'm trying to just figure out how to go faster because it's just boring. Yeah. And, um, this, and I'll tell you, this act three does nothing. No. Yeah. Push yeah. anything forward. It's like an empty act. Yeah, I agree. And by the way, I mean, you know, the other, you know, you talked about the doomsday machine being a great example of a, of an episode with a ticking clock. Another episode that is a great example of a ticking clock is the naked time. Absolutely. As the Enterprise is spiraling down to Psi 2000 and the crew is getting more infective with the disease. I mean, that is a great example, direct, directed by Mark Daniels, just like the Doomsday Machine. Like, he was good with the ticking clock stuff. And then as they're talking... He's on overload. Controls are fuse dropped. And he has to throw it away and there's a big explosion. It's another weird power that's like, okay, it seems like she would have an easier time killing these guys than she does... Didn't so is it only Kirk's phaser that uh explodes? Yeah, yeah it's the, the other yeah, where's Sulu's phaser and where's Dr. McCoy's phaser? They just disappear at this point in the episode and we never see them again. And then we're back on the Enterprise and we're at this crawlway and Scotty's with his, you know, assistants. And I do like that they kind of lift him up into the crawl space is kind of fun. Yeah. And and being in the crawl space, seeing the uh, sort of electricity, yeah. you know, whatever yeah. that is going around. You know, it's a good effect. I've sealed off the aft end 
of the service crawway and have positioned explosive separator charges to blast me clear of the ship if I rupture the magnetic bottle. Okay, so if he does something wrong, he's going to get blown out of the, the ship, right? Right. If he does something wrong, he's going to blow the ship up. And so they have two seconds to jettison him so that that doesn't happen. But then in eight minutes or whatever is whatever time was left, the ship's going to blow up anyway. Right. Yeah, I, it, it, the, the way they start talking about it, it almost seems like ejecting him would save the ship. But that isn't the case. No. So why we why introduce this idea when it doesn't really help us in any way? That's right. Yeah, yeah that's I, right. I do like the line. I'm so close to the flow now and it feels like ants crawling all over my body. I wish we dealt more with that, with his discomfort in this thing. And again, <laughs> Spock shuts down his descriptions. Mr. Scott, I suggest you refrain from any further subjective descriptions. You now have 10 minutes and 19 seconds in which to perform your task. We're up to warp 11.2. And increasing. The safety control will not hold more than two seconds if I rupture the field. I am aware of these facts. Please get on with the job. Those two lines, <laughs> trying to think of how to explain this. It's purely expositional. It's it's telling the audience a thing that there's no reason that Scotty would say because Spock already knows it. Um, I didn't express that. You know what? The way I expressed that was basically as boring as I find the lines that I was trying to explain. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and here's the thing. I, I was trying to figure out where I was going to say this. There's a thing that becomes an absolute standard in future Star Trek series. What's that? And that is the meaningless techno babble that we have to solve some technological problem that doesn't make any sense to us today, but kind of makes sense to them. And I think it's terrible. And this is what I want to say about it is that when it works in Star Trek, they do something that even if it's technological in a way that we can't do, we understand what they're doing. A perfect example is Wrath of Khan, two-dimensional thinking, is that when Spock says that, now I don't know how to fly the Enterprise, but I understand what Kirk is going to do. The Corbomite maneuver, I understand what Kirk is doing. All the stuff in Balance of Terror, I understand what they're doing, all the tricks they're playing. When we get to, I have to reseal the thing and reverse the polarity in order to, it doesn't mean anything to me. It's all meaningless. Yeah, you know, it, when they when they simplify what they can't explain, it actually makes you understand it better. Like in the Tholian web, when Spock says, uh, uh, we see it, but our sensors indicate it is not there. Space itself is literally breaking up. Like, okay, that's all I need to know. And I understand what that means. Yeah. It, it, well, and the things that they're trying to do, if I move away from here, we'll lose the captain. I understand that. I don't have to know. It's not science that just doesn't make sense. It's not gobbledygook. Right. Um, Scotty opens up something. He pulls out his uh, his space wrench. <laughs> you have eight minutes, 41 seconds. I know what time it is. I don't need a blooming cuckoo clock. Mm -hmm. Which is a funny line. But if he said it and Spock heard it, we should have had a reaction from Mr. Spock. You might not have liked that reaction, though. <laughs> well, even a, a raised eyebrow would have been a great reaction. Do you know what I mean? Sure. Who have you come for this time? For you, James T. Kirk, commander of the Enterprise. And that's the end of Act 3. So, so Dave, before we get into Act 4, I want to ask you. So we, we had you on for Court Martial. We had you on for the Doomsday Machine and, and the Ultimate Computer. And those two episodes, Doomsday Machine and the Ultimate Computer, like you, 
and Mike Akuda and Denise Akuda, like when you were doing the new visual effects for the original series, those two episodes must have been like so much fun and exciting that you could really upgrade the visual effects and and make them very 21st century. So, but when you get to an episode like that, which survives, sure you had the the image of the planet and also the the scenes of the of the Enterprise, you know, going at warp 14.1, and you have the the scene where the Enterprise is transported, you know, thousand light years away. Uh, how did you, the three of you, like sort of maintain the excitement for episodes that were a little more on the mediocre side? I mean, we were walking this line of we don't want the visual effects to you know, overshadow what's going on in the story, they should complement it. So there just wasn't a lot to do with an episode like this, right? I mean, there, there is a shot that I love that that uh, opens up with the Enterprise flying <clears throat> at super fast warp speeds, and it's really zipping by the camera. And I really love that shot. But to be honest, I don't know if that, that might have been a stock shot that we used from a different episode. Wow. Yeah. Um, this is a much longer story, but by the time we got to the third season, we had very strict orders to not create as many new shots. And so we ended up having to to repurpose some shots. By that point, we had had, oh, wow. well, I don't know, maybe 150 new shots of the Enterprise. So we were very happy with what we were able to do and new planets were needed. But those shots might be stock of the enterprise flying past. Wow. Mm, so you were, you were essentially in the same position in season three that the star Trek originally was in season three, which is you were, didn't have as much money and you had to reuse old resources. Yes. Wow. Interesting. Keep behind us, Joe. And so he gets behind Sulu and McCoy who act as blockers. And I think they do a terrible job of this in this scene. There's moments where Kirk comes out around the side. He's like three feet away from her. It would be so easy for her to reach out and touch him. Yeah, and I agree. It, it just, I don't believe the, the way they're doing this at all. Captain, I'm getting no life form register. Android? No, they would give a mechanical reading. I'm getting nothing. Which again is a thing contradicting something he said earlier. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I am Locera, commander. Commander of what? Of the station. This is this moment where they kind of engage in this thing like in some of the other episodes where he asks, how do you feel about killing me? Killing is wrong. And this is, it could be the ultimate computer. It could be uh, Roger Corby. It could be, you know, it seems like we're getting into one of those sort of moments, but we really don't. Yeah, we don't yeah it doesn't go do far it. enough. Yeah. yeah. And again, he asks, are you lonely? And she has a reaction. And it, it's this idea, like, maybe we're going to engage her emotionally, but we really don't. Um, and then she disappears. Like a door closing. <laughs> yeah. She must be somewhere. She's not registering. And again, I'm like, haven't you heard of a transporter? Like she could be anywhere. Right, right, right. And yes, we have this surge of a door closing, except now it looks like they have a direction and they walk over and they're at this rock, which apparently is a door and it opens up. Why? Exactly. Why, wait, what, 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 are they being led somewhere now? Are they being led into a trap? But Kirk reasons that. The, if there's any food and water around here, it's going to be in there, and they still they still have to find food and water. So they take the chance and they go in. Yeah, it, we have this thing that's so powerful it should have no problem killing them whatsoever. They're on a planet where they're going to die in a day or two anyway because the vegetation is poisonous and there's no water. And she probably could kill them on the surface by touching them. 
and yet she's leading them into the inside, which is the one place she's vulnerable. Yeah, sounds about right. Yeah. <laughs> We're back on the Enterprise. The computer analysis is complete. We hear there's 57 seconds to go. I think they take three minutes or something when they say 57 seconds. Yeah, that's true. Well, 13.2, sir. Scott, is this the fastest that the Enterprise has ever gone? Yes. In the original series, this episode, That Which Survives, Warp 14.1, is the fastest the original series Enterprise ever went. In the beginning, I forgave them that they didn't really have standards. In the middle, that they still didn't really have standards. It's like, at one point, we we're going to blow up if we hit Warp 10 or Warp 11. And now we're going like 14. And it's like, you guys should have worked this out. <laughs> Reverse polarity on your magnetic probe. That is correct, Mr. Scott. I don't think so. I'm doing. I, what purpose could it Please commence. I'll explain. And what he basically says is that Scotty was right about the field because the Enterprise was put through a molecular transporter and reassembled slightly out of phase. Reverse polarity should seal the incision. This is what I mean by technological gobbledygook that we can't understand that is what s- saves the Enterprise. Right. But it doesn't save the Enterprise. Oh, well, that's a good point. Because Scotty is trying to do this thing and he says, you know what? This thing is stuck. It doesn't work. I'm just going to put it back together the way it was. And to hell with it. I'm just going to go and do what I was going to do in the first. Wait, wait. So I thought he I thought he unstuck it and put it the way it was the reverse polarity. Put it back the same way. Really? He just takes it out and he says, there's no time. And he puts he snaps it back in. He says, I'm just going to do it. And he he sticks the thing in there and it and it works. Clearly, it's not that that's not clear because I didn't understand that that's what I thought he managed to switch it at the last possible second and then used it in reverse polarity. It seems to me in watching it that he he unsnaps this thing, but he puts it back exactly the same way and yells, there's no time now and Mm. just goes in and does it the way he was supposed to be, the way he was going to do. Well, and this there's no time now. And he's now saying, you got to eject me. You got to eject me. We're counting down to the last 20 seconds of the Enterprise surviving. What difference does it make if they eject him? Yeah. They could blow up anyway. Don't be a fool. Push the button. It's your last chance. Don't be sentimental. Push it. I'm going to die anyway. And I'm like, they're all going to die anyway. By the way, the last 20 seconds took over a minute. Um, I'll, I'll stop bringing that up. And then basically nothing happens except we start slowing down. They didn't do a shake. They didn't do a sound effect. Warp 15.9 and dropping. Mr. Scott accomplished your task you might at least say thank you for what purpose mr scott and this is again it's like back to the earliest days of spock mm-hmm, mm-hmm. he should have said thank you right right we are now inside the station whatever it is and there is a very cool glowing cube on the ceiling and she enters who you come from and she has her arms out wide and doesn't give them an answer Former sir. It would be so easy for her to touch one of them at this yeah, moment. Yeah, just lunge out and grab someone. Yeah. yeah, totally. I am for James T. Kirk. Is she compelled to say who she's for? Seems that way. I guess so. I mean, she she certainly has no problem saying who she is for and alerting the person that she is yeah. for to duck for cover, basically. So she has the power to send the Enterprise a thousand light years away, but can't shut up. Right. (laughs) You are my match, James Kirk. I must touch you. Then I will live as one, even to the structure of your cells, the arrangement of chromosomes. That is how you kill. 
But what's so interesting is like, it seems like there's a thing there that they just don't go into that, you know, that it fulfills her in some way or she's in, you know, communication with them. It's something here that never got really written out. Mm -hmm. Watch out. I am from McCoy. And there is another one. Uh, And then a third one shows up for Sulu. And now they kind of switch positions. But I don't, again, why doesn't she just lunge at them? It would be very easy for her, for her to get the, at least one of them at a time. It's not like a shell game. I mean, she, yeah, yeah, you know, that's she, right. She, but but they cut to her doing this thing where you know it's the three images of her, and she's you yeah. know like like she's confused, moving her arm or something. It just doesn't work at all. But fortunately, Spock and a red guy beam down. Spock, the computer, destroy it. The red guy shoots the cube, and suddenly these images of Lasira disappear. Yeah, the cavalry just came over the hill in the nick of time. What a remarkable culture this is. Was Mister Spock? Its defenses were run by computer. I surmise that, Captain. Its moves were immensely logical. I'm like, really? I didn't understand its moves at all. Yeah. I don't think there was anything logical about this. But what people created this? Are there any representatives here? There were replicas of one of them. But that power to recreate them has been destroyed. And then she appears to explain everything that's happened. Right. And we get a long speech about the Kalandans and that they had created this base but a disease hit them and they were all dying out waiting for the colonial ship to get there and this is her last message saying i will set the outpost controls on automatic the computer will selectively defend against all life forms but our own my fellow colandans i losira wish you well and she closes her eyes and freezes and so that's the explanation of what happened. I mean, it, it's an interesting explanation, but it's like literally saving like everything for the end instead of like having, you know, just like when we've seen in the, in the best episodes where they discover things along the way that inch you closer and closer to that reveal. It's like it all happens like at the in literally the last two minutes of the episode. Absolutely. We didn't have them figuring stuff out and maybe figuring out why Lucera is doing what she's doing and what her weakness is and how to defeat her. It's not in there's none of that. Exactly. The supply ship that she was waiting for never came. All these thousands of years she's been waiting to greet people who were dead. I don't think we could know that that's what happened. It projected so much of Lucera's personality into the replica that it felt regret. Guilt at killing. That bought us the time we needed to destroy it. Is that what happens? Well, that's what they're explaining. That's what they're saying by the computer was too perfect, meaning it was creating a representation of Lucera that was so perfect. Um, it, it was so it was so perfect that that it, it actually expressed regret right. at, and hesitation at killing. It wasn't just that that's what I got out of it. No, no, I think you're absolutely right. That's not my question. My what they said is it was that guilt that bought us enough time that we needed to destroy it. Did you see the guilt buying them time, or them using that in order to destroy it? No, I don't think that's what really happened. What then? What really happened? No, I'm saying that that there that nothing like that happened. I'm saying oh, I'm saying that that if that that would have been an interesting thing if they had really worked on this guilt thing like the ultimate computer or something but right. i don't when think we saw into, that when she turns into three different laceras there's no guilt there's no, no she's there's trying nothing to happening where she's where she's suddenly overcome by guilt i mean she's standing there trying to figure out each one is trying to figure out how to get to the the target and then spock shows up and and red shirt guy blasts the yeah. computer yeah. so mr lemley yeah mr um, lemley yeah, yeah. She must have been a remarkable woman. 
maybe? And beautiful. Beauty is transitory, Doctor. However, she was evidently highly intelligent. I don't agree with you, Mr. Spock. Indeed, Captain. Beauty survives. I, what the hell does that mean? <laughs> I really don't know what that means. Um, but that is the end of That Which Survives. And while I try to put together my thoughts of what to say about this episode, Scott, maybe you have some other people's thoughts. Uh, I have Dorothy Fontana's thoughts. And uh, Darth- Dorothy Fontana, who wrote the story, and she was credited as Michael Richards, her pseudonym, she says, I watched it once. I thought Lee Merriweather was quite nice, but it really wasn't my story by the time they got through with it. So I just said, well, okay, I got paid and I'll get residuals and that's fine. And I'm out of here. <laughs> <laughs> but Lee Merriweather said, I had such a wonderful time with all of them. Bill William Shatner was fun. I knew he was a character from the moment I met him. I thought, here's a guy with a great sense of humor. He flirted, of course, and I let him know right away that I was married. So we just had a great time. I just had the best time with Doc, the Forrest Kelly. He was just wonderful. He was so real and such a dear. So at least she had something nice to say about it. (laughs) Okay, I feel like I have had time now to put together a thought. And this is what I'll say. I believe in the third season, first of all, as Scott said at the very beginning, the batting average has been much higher than I expected. And there have been some genuinely really good episodes. But I also think that we have been treated to a wide variety of different flavors of bad Star Trek. And so there are episodes like And the Children Shall Lead, which I find unwatchable. It's so horrible. (laughs) Episodes like Spock's Brain that's kind of fun but it's stupid and a lot of the ideas are just really dumb episode like plato's children which is literally torturous like it's just it's it's physically painful for me to watch that episode and this one where it's just kind of just doesn't make sense i mean it's not offensive to me but it's just like i think it's just a total waste that's how i feel about this episode and it is has has happened a couple of times it got worse on my rewatch and it got worse during this conversation in my mind well, I just, you know, uh, yeah, I really don't like it. You, you mentioned Spock's brain. I think what makes Spock's brain better than I remember it being is because it's such a fascinating watch because the first half of Spock's brain is actually pretty good. It doesn't get bad yeah. until well, it's, it doesn't start to go down until act three. And then in act four, it completely goes off the rails. But for the first half of the episode, Spock's brain is actually a pretty solid episode as for Plato's stepchildren, the, the torture scenes were were really uncomfortable and unbearable to watch. But the moments between Kirk and Alexander, and especially yeah. the performance of Michael Dunn, like those moments redeem that episode. So during our, my rewatch of Plato's stepchildren and during our conversation, Dave, we were joined by Dan Madsen, who I know you know, and yeah. you know that episode means a lot to him. So having him on to talk about how Plato's stepchildren changed his life, d- despite being not a very good episode, that made that episode go up in my estimation. Right. But during our conversation for That Which Survives, I realized that it's just kind of flat. Like yeah. It, yep. it, an episode that should be teeming with suspense and really keep you on the edge of your seat as a ticking clock fails to do so. And that's the major shortcoming of this episode. Sure, a lot of things that we watch on Star Trek, if you hold them up under scrutiny, then they don't hold up at all. But in this case, what really brought the episode down for me 
not just on the rewatch, but certainly in this conversation, is realizing just how ineffective it was at building suspense and how out of character Spock was for like the entire duration of the episode. It wasn't like there was like one moment where Spock was like completely out of character. Like where was the Spock from the Tholian web? Like that, that's maybe that would have made the episode better to have him, you know, compassionate, show empathy for the crew, you know, missing the captain and the other guys. But this conversation just made me realize how much that which survives doesn't work. Yeah. They, you know, they introduced some, interesting elements that they just never followed through on, you know? I mean, the idea of how does this computer work and bringing a little more of Lucera to it would have been interesting. And and would she have felt guilt? And, you know, I think all of those things are interesting concepts, but again, it just fell flat. They didn't, they didn't explore the right things. And the jeopardy that they introduced was, uh, non-Jeopardy. I mean, it, it just was, their performances were, were flat on it. And again, they resorted to kind of techno babble for the enterprise parts at the end. Um, it just doesn't work. It's just a, yeah, just kind of a flat episode. Flat. You know what? I just had an idea of what, of maybe a, a, a change you could make. And it's just the beginning of an idea, but I'll throw it out there anyway, which is I think what they could have used was a, a plot point that's more like Voyage Home. So in Voyage Home, there's a thing coming that's going to destroy the Earth because it's asking for a response from the humpback whales, and there are no humpback whales, and so it's going to destroy the planet, right? So this is a station where she is waiting for this ship to come, and the system is defending against anything that isn't their people. Right. What if they, what if they figured that out, and Kirk realized that what the Enterprise had to do was somehow fake being the return of that ship, mm. you know? Mm. And so there's a detective element and then he has to somehow get that message to the enterprise and the enterprise has to somehow do a thing. And then Lasira welcomes them with open arms rather than trying to destroy them, you know? Interesting. Okay. Interesting. I That's- think there's a Steve Morris rewrite in the works for this episode. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> there's more stuff to be figured out, but that that is what our thoughts on that which survive are. Maybe you have completely different thoughts. Maybe this episode meant an absolute ton to you and it's super important and we would love to hear those reasons on our Facebook page. You could do a search for Enterprise Incidents or maybe you want to communicate through us through Twitter, Enter Incidents, or on Instagram where it's Enterprise Incidents, or even in comments on YouTube where you can subscribe to the show. But if you don't want to subscribe on YouTube because it really isn't video, it's still just audio, well, you might as well just do it on Apple Podcasts. And while you're at Apple Podcasts, I know you've been meaning to leave that five-star review, but for some reason you haven't done it yet. Well, guess what? Today is your lucky day to leave that (laughs) five-star review. And if you want to support the show, you can do it through anchor.com. And people have always asked exactly how you do this. There's show notes that are on every single episode. And at the very top of them, there is a link. You click on that link in the show notes. We'll also post it in social media, and that'll take you to Anchor, where you can support the show for as little as 99 cents a month. Um, And if you want to reach me, you can do it at srmorris on Twitter, srmorris1 on Instagram. And uh, just yesterday, as we record this, we had a fantastic live show of The Cinephiles with fantastic guests, including my good friend Scott Mance, where we discussed and argued about what are the best and worst movie franchises of all time. And my choice for the worst movie franchise of all time 
will absolutely shock you. <laughs> it shocked. It definitely shocked me. <laughs> Scott, how do people find you? You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Movie Mance. And like Steve said, please uh, support us on Apple Podcasts by giving us a review. Please support us on Anchor. If you want to do as little as 99 cents a month, you could do that. If you want to do as much as $9.99 a month, by all means, Knock yourself out. We would sure appreciate that. Uh, Make sure you go to our Facebook page, which is Enterprise Incidents on Facebook, and make sure you follow our Facebook page if you haven't already done so, because we love hearing from you and we engage. I certainly spend a whole lot of time on our Facebook page answering questions and and posting new things about our upcoming episodes of Enterprise Incidents. I want to thank our great guest, Dave Rossi, for making his fourth appearance on Enterprise Incidents. Dave, where can people follow you on social media? I am on uh, Twitter at... uh at underscore it means hope and uh, you can you can find my little star trek delta with the superman symbol inside my licensing nightmare uh, <laughs> but uh but thanks again for having me guys this is always a, a highlight for me it's always a lot of fun talking about this stuff with you and uh who would have thought that 56 years ago we would have ended up here Amazing. It really is amazing. Uh, And, um, you know, if I could figure out a way to incorporate the Beatles logo with the Delta Shield, I would be right there with you and butchering two licensed uh, properties there, mixing my two obsessions, which is Star Trek and the Beatles. Maybe I'll just put the Beatles logo where the star is in the insignia. There you go. There you go. That. That's a great idea. I got to get yeah. on that. But uh, absolutely, Dave, you know, I've known you for, I don't know, almost 30 years now. And it's been such a great pleasure to know you as a friend. And it's been so, so much fun to have you on Enterprise Incidents all these times. And, uh, you know, make sure you join us for the next voyage of Enterprise Incidents. This is an episode that people love it or people hate it. Yes, it is about as subtle as a sledgehammer. But I do love it, and this is an episode I do go back and watch over and over again because I love one of the guest stars, Frank Gorshin. Of course, that episode is Let That Be Your Last Battlefield. That is next on Enterprise Incidents. So join us then, and until then, keep going boldly. Keep going boldly.